The views expressed on this podcast are those of the participants, not of Reuters News. Welcome to The Views Room, a weekly podcast brought to you by Reuters Breaking Views. I'm Rob Cox, the editor of Breaking Views, coming to you from Zurich, Switzerland. This week, I spoke to Yuna Galani, our Mumbai-based India editor, who's now taking a break in the British countryside, about a column she wrote this week on Mukesh Ambani. If you don't know who he is, you should. He's India's richest man. Actually, he's Asia's richest man. He leads Reliance Industries, a $200 billion conglomerate that's active in telecoms, technology, retail, oil and gas, you name it. Yuna looked into his plans to break Reliance into three different parts, potentially helping to head off any future questions around succession and governance among his family. He has three children. It's an issue close to home for the Ambani's. The death of Mukesh's father in 2002 kicked off a Bollywood-worthy fight between him and his brother. After that, I spoke to Dasha Afanasieva and Karen Kwok in London about the question of whether many U.S. and European multinationals are becoming just a little too dependent on China for their growth. I wrote a column on the topic inspired by Dasha's analysis of cognac maker Remy Cointreau's extraordinary stock market performance this year, and that's largely on the back of strong demand in China for things like uh, really expensive cognac. As you'll hear us discuss, the issue is whether this increased reliance on China will push companies to lobby their governments to take a less aggressive approach, say, with the Communist Party on trade, security, human rights, and other really important matters. Anyway, give a listen here. Yuna, it's great to speak to you. You're not in India. You're in uh, somewhere in a cattle farm in uh, a remote part of the UK. Is that right? Yeah, I'm home visiting my folks. <laughs> but you are still keeping an eye on India. You wrote a really interesting piece this week about uh, Mukesh Ambani and Reliance Industries, which uh, which caught the attention of our readers. And I think there are a whole bunch of different strands to talk about here, but maybe Let's uh, step back a bit for for everyone who's not quite aware that he is Asia's richest man and uh, and the tycoon of India. Maybe explain a bit about who Mukesh Ambani is. Right. Well, so Mukesh Ambani is you know India's top industrialist. Long for a long, long time, he's been India's richest man, and he's uh, he's now very much, as you said, Asia's richest man. And his business sort of spans multiple things. It originally was an oil to chemicals business. And now he's got um, retail in there. He's got a telecoms business with a tech slant in there. And so he has this $200 billion empire with three main units in it. And, you know, in the last sort of this year, basically, since the pandemic uh, has happened really in March in, in India, we've had billions of dollars sort of, of investment come into some of his yeah, it's units. it's almost been like um, a deal a week coming out of India coming out of reliance and you've been you know frenetically writing about these things but I mean just sort of let's is it worth sort of ticking through some of the big deals that he's done in those three different businesses right right the most prominent one that we, we know about is geo and this is geo platforms it's this tech to telecoms entity and this is the one that facebook and google have backed it's google and um and and you know they valued that business at something like uh 70 billion dollars and then we have um a retail shopping arm which is now in its own fundraising uh fundraising sort of round and it's got money in already from silver lake and abu dhabi's mubadala and that's come in that's valued now about 57 billion dollars and and then we have the oil to chemicals business which is like the traditional heart and core of the entire reliance business and aramco last year valued that at 75 billion dollars they haven't invested yet but they valued it at 75 billion dollars so essentially it looks straightforward you know he's got three 
main business units that are similarly valued, you know, taking give your take a bit. Right. But now the valuations are private market valuations based on these deals or we, we can also look yeah, at it through the market a bit. Is there so is there is there a read through from the public market? Yeah, I mean it's pretty much the same. He's not he is he does not have a, a big discount. So there's like a two hundred billion dollar market value, and the sum of the parts pretty much add up to the same thing. And that's really important and interesting because he's got now three businesses within one listed entity that are all similarly valued in size, and he's got lo and behold three children. <laughs> Right. We'll get to the succession matter in a second, but that is actually an interesting point. Most of these kinds of conglomerate holding companies will trade at a at a pretty big, you know, 20 to even 30 percent discount to the sum of the parts. I was just the other day over at Siemens in Germany and, you know, they trade. This is not a that's not a family. That's a giant industrial company, but trades at a 20 percent discount. I mean, you go back and look at the Agnelli family holding companies. So it's amazing that the market is actually giving him the benefit of the value of, of all these businesses. He must be yeah, a magician. I think, I, well, I think I think it's, it's partly partly a magician, partly that it's sort of, you know, he's made a commitment that he's going to list two of these entities, right? So he's committed he's going to list Geo, which is the tech and telecoms business, and he's committed that he's going to list retail. So you kind of have a sort of value right. crystallization event coming down the path. But, you know, you touch on a really interesting point, which is that, you know, in the West, the conventional wisdom is that conglomerates are bad. And I think, you know, in, in emerging markets, when you look at these big uh, corporate tycoons who have these big sprawling empires, you know, there is real value to having mm. uh, many businesses under one owner, uh, you know, cheaper cost of credit, uh, sort of easier to move regulators and politicians in your favor. I mean, there's, there's a real business benefit. I don't think anyone would deny that. So is he, I mean, is he like India's Warren Buffett? Is that how one way to think of him? Uh, yeah, I guess I guess if you want to put a label on it, I guess you could do that. Yeah. Come I mean, on, think, we're journalists. We always have okay, to say okay, 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 he's so the XXX of Y. <laughs> okay, he's he's India's John Rockefeller. I'll give you that. Whoa. Well, that I don't know if that's good because that means he's going to get broken up at some time by regulators. <laughs> but but I'll, I'll give it to you. So okay, but then let's like think. Let's just move a little bit to the piece you wrote, which which questioned a little bit. Like he's setting this. You know, how is he setting up? this empire for the long run, both in terms of ownership, you mentioned that he's committed to list the geo platforms in the retail business, but also in terms of management with the successors. I mean, what, not that, I mean, he's only 63 years old, so he's not, it's not like this is an immediate problem, um, but what's, what's he, how is he setting things up for the next generation? Well, look, I mean, so you say it's not an immediate problem, but succession is a really delicate topic in the Ambani household. You know, the family patriarch founder, Mukesh Ambani's own father, Durabai Ambani, he died in 2002 after suffering a stroke. He was only 69 years old. And what happened uh. afterwards is, you know, captivated the country and beyond. It was billed as, you know, it was India's top sibling rivalry. There was an epic feud between Mukesh and his younger, his, his younger brother, Anil Ambani. It was a sort of stuff of implausible... Bollywood film plots, ugly, messy, and ultimately they both, you know, they both inherited the business, the Reliance business, and uh, ultimately the mother stepped in and brokered an agreement to divide the businesses in 2005. And Mukesh got oil refining, petrochemicals, and Anil Ambani got a bunch of other stuff: financial services, telecoms, power generation. But the point being is that ever since then, the fortunes of the two brothers have wildly diverged. 
earlier this year, younger brother Anil, he was basically in the London courts pleading poverty against his Chinese bank creditors. And Mukesh's fortune, as we've discussed, you know, it's exploded. So it's a great story. But there's no doubt that this tycoon will not want to see his children go through anything similar. And he's kind of looks like he's setting up for that. So how has he done that? He's given each of these so groups, these three businesses to one of them is it, or or he, he has one, them running each of them. What well, no, to be fair, I mean Reliance Industries is a is is largely day-to-day a professionally run business. I mean Mukeshambani is the chairman and the managing director and his children are on the managing uh, management committees of various businesses, but there's been small signals recently. You know, we, we've seen Akesh um one of the sons, he's taking a more prominent role, making some of the announcements at Geo. We've seen Isha, his twin, making some of the more prominent announcements about the oh, retail. Oh, twins. Some of, this, yeah, this yeah, yeah, yeah. Gets very <laughs> some, sort of almost biblical Shakespearean element to it. <laughs> <laughs> and she's been announcing some of these great investments that have been coming into retail. And Anand, the youngest one, has actually just in the most recent annual report, he's like popped up on the management team of the oil to chemicals business. So, you know, it doesn't, although it is a profession and those management committees are large, there's a lot of professional management in there. um, But, you know, it's clear that the children are stepping up and that they intend to play a role in these businesses going forward. And, 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 And that's very clear. And I guess investment bankers from all over the world are are flocking to the Ambani's to try to do these deals, to try to take do these spinoffs of Geo and the retail business. Is that yeah, is well, sort I, of like what everyone's gearing yeah. up for? Yeah. Well, actually, the most amazing thing is that Morgan Stanley's had a has a bit of a monopoly on all of this. So they've they've brought all the sort of money, uh, billions of dollars they've raised for Geo. They're bringing all the money into uh, Reliance Retail. So it's only the oil to chemicals business they're not run, running the show at. So, I mean, it's possible they've got they've got prime position to sort of float some of these businesses, but I'm sure there'll be others as well. And if the Mbani's aren't they the ones with that amazing, the, like the world's largest residence, that, that tower in the middle of Mumbai? Yeah, and and Antilla, they it's it's an incredible I mean, it's almost a sort of, oh, I don't know, it's like a homage to capitalism of sorts you know i mean it's, it is a skyscraper that is a home yeah it's a skyscraper on sort of bombay's uh possibly india's richest uh, wealthiest street and it's multi 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 stories high uh you know and it's and, and the bottom floor and the bottom two floors are sort of pretty much exclusively for hosting these huge events every every other week obviously not now because of the pandemic but but yeah it's it's, it's really a, it's, it's really something impressive in a in a country or awesome i would say in a country that has like very deep socialist roots as well <laughs> and poverty <laughs> some of the well, you know it, is, it it does stick out like a sore thumb or you might it say does, middle it finger does, and it also <laughs> it does and it also speaks to the sort of the spirit of bombay though which is very much a kind of come and build your fortune city in i mean there are definite there's obviously a lot of poverty and it's it's a hard life but it you know it's not the sort of stuff of uh people don't people look up to it as much as they as as much as they frown upon it i think right right all right well thanks yuna enjoy your time in the english countryside maybe hopefully see you sooner rather than later in mumbai sooner sooner all right bye Greetings, Dasha and Karen. Lovely to see you both on this uh, fine Teams chat. Hi, Rob. So 
Let's talk a little bit about China. Uh, you got you got got the ball rolling this week and, and inspired me to write a column, uh, Dasha. You you looked at Remy Cointreau's, um actually had a, a, has had an amazing year in some respects. The stock has risen more than forty percent, even as rivals like Diageo and Perno Ricard have struggled. And a lot of that has to do with uh, Remy's exposure to China. And and just we'll, we'll, let's jump into Remy in a second. But I mean. That the, the reason the reason this inspired me is we're starting to see this at a whole bunch of other big you know multinational companies in Europe and the U.S. Like China's powering their growth. What's what did you learn when you dove into Remy Cointreau's results? Well, I was really taking a look at why uh, Remy. Remy's share price has risen so much as rivals like Diageo and Pernod Ricard um, struggle or, you know, sort of have lost market value. Mm. And the answer, one of the explanations uh, was actually its exposure to China. And the company doesn't actually report, um, you know, the, the sales in the country in, in China, but analysts reckon it's something like 20, 25% of total sales, which is pretty chunky. And yeah. around a third is, is Asia Pacific more, more generally. Um, and I guess what I found was that this is really uh, a big part of the explanation for why Remy is performing better. It's also, you know, the U.S. recovering and people drinking at home in the U.S. and buying these crazy expensive bottles as a as a treat. But mostly, it's China um, and and the tradition in China, which has really helped out Remy over the years, is to gift these these super expensive uh, bottles of cognac. Isn't that right, Harry? Yeah, and also. Um... The, the teenagers over there actually really love uh, drinking and to celebrate in festivals. So um, in your article, you also mentioned that during the Meat Autumn Festival, uh, they drink to celebrate. And so this is quite a unique timing for them to uh, consume more alcohols and also different consumer products, right? So you've got, yeah, you have this moment, which is sort of highlights a couple of things. One is, you, as you say, Karen, they're like the festivals, like people are actually kind of going about normal life in China, which is in ways that is, are unimaginable here. And I mean, I'm in Switzerland, you guys are in London, or you think about our colleagues in the States, the idea that you're going out and, I don't know, popping bottles of anything in some festival in sort of that kind of environment seems almost um, like a dream, doesn't it? Yeah, exactly. And it's also a way for them to meet their families. And also within China, they uh, they also started traveling with them. Like, so their staycation allowed them to um, to travel across different parts of China. So uh, it actually kind of uh, indirectly encouraged the consuming uh, trend. And also, as you, uh, as you know, there are actually spikes in car sales as well, because people increasingly using uh, driving to travel to other parts of China. So that is also part of the trend, yes. Well, hopefully they're not drinking the Remy Martin, Louis, oh, no. the, the eight bottles for 2,500 francs, which I see on the web here, this cognac, I mean, and then driving. <laughs> um, but it, I guess uh, going back to Remy a little bit, um, Dasha. So they've also got that. So in, in addition to just a general buoyancy in the market, there is also like they still sell those fancy bottles, right? They kind of hit that. I don't know the people who buy those. What is it? Uh, uh, Mao Tai bottles, which you see at the airport, which cost thousands of dollars. You know, they have these sort of fancy bottles. But but I mean, what's interesting is that 
it's not just it's not just fancy stuff, right? So, um, as an example, you wrote about Unilever as well uh, today, and what did you find there? I mean, China was also driving their growth, right? Yeah, I mean, Unilever uh, is back to basically getting its growth, deriving its growth, not from Europe, um, but from from develop, uh, developing markets. Uh, growth in developing markets was, I think, around 5.3% mm -hmm. uh, compared to the average 44 um, And China's Ch China had double-digit growth. So I think it shows, and, you know, Unilever has some Lux, say, beauty prestige products, but on the whole, it's your sort of, you know, run-of-the-mill stock cubes and deodorant. Um, but it does show, you know, it's a, it's a dependency for these companies, firstly, in terms of revenue and profit share, but also it's the only, it, it's one of the few sources of growth. Right, right. I mean, it's interesting, you, you, just to, it's not just, um, it, you mentioned it's like deodorant and stuff like that. I mean, one of the, the things that we wrote about, in, in, I wrote about in a column about this is also Reckitt Benkeiser, a company that you cover. Um, and they they have also highlighted a whole bunch of things, including, you know, quite interestingly, um, you know, sales of condoms, and what they call sexual well-being well-being products. And, you know, it kind of reminded me of the story you wrote for our What Will Change uh, project about about I don't know it was like hookup hookup culture and how the the companies like Tinder and Match were were trying to deal with the fact that people aren't you know, going out and meeting and things like that. And here you have this like perfect example. They talked about how um, condom sales really slumped during the first two months or first two quarters because of the lockdowns and then popped back up during the, 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 the summer, but have been pretty much consistently good in China. Mm. Yeah, I mean, it just sort of shows that it's uh, it's a really turning into a really reliable market. Um, yeah. So what's the downside? Like, what's the downside to that? What do you, from your well, perspective? I think definitely, in in Re, in Remy's perspective, it's a really big exposure, and the valuation that it's getting for it, in my opinion, is is super high. It's almost too much. It's kind of, you know, there's no sort of headroom for anything to go wrong. There's no room for sort of a, a geopolitical problem, for example. There's no room for sudden sanctions. And, you know, we're already living in a world where, um, you know, the economy is used effectively and trade, they're used as political tools. Mm. So you've got, um, you know, Remy narrowly escaped US sanctions against European produce. Um, and, and, you know, it's conceivable to think of analogous situations that would somehow damage China's market. Um, mm. I don't think, I, I feel like the world is so sort of, you know, intertwined or, or Chinese trade is, is so intertwined um, with lots of companies. I don't know the likelihood of it, but you sort of don't want to be too. There's an argument for not being too exposed to any one market. Um, well, certainly, yeah, the diversification or concentration of risk is one problem. I mean, the other is, of course, you've got the, 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 the other issue is you it's China isn't is it's all wrapped up with all sorts of other issues. I mean, Karen, of course, you as a Hong Konger have some, yeah. have more experience with this, but things around um, the, the freedom of speech and expression in Hong Kong or the way that Hong Kong is 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 handled by the um, by Beijing, but that, you know, the way US or European trade relations 
are, are, are handled. Or even, you know, if the if the EU or uh, the U.S. wanted to make a bigger deal of human rights issues, for example, Muslims in Western China, all this gets can can be kind of complicated. If all of a sudden you find yourself, all your biggest companies, your you know your giant multinationals on whom you rely for employment and tax revenue, are all kind of heavily dependent on China. What do you think? I think the um, it's it's a really good point, and the luxury sector can actually is actually a very good example that reflect that. How so? Spain data, for example, showing that last year, uh, it's um, China is account of luxury sectors a third of the sales, and it's going to go up to more than half, right? Um, mm. And, and you can see in the previous year in examples is that when there's something that's violated China, like the Versace and uh, naming their on their website, naming Hong Kong as a separate city uh, from uh, away from China, uh, there are backlash by right. the Internet and people are quitting the brand and a lot of like ambassador in China of Versace or different luxury brands are kind of saying that, oh, we're not going to represent represent them anymore because of this. So these kind of backlash can see that over-reliance on China uh, in sales is kind of has a bad side on it. Right, right. And well, and that's even before you get to, I mean, if you imagine that LVMH, which is the, um, you know, the world's biggest luxury goods company, and it is controlled by France's Europe's richest man, let alone France's richest man, who who recently showed that he has, you know, with this whole Tiffany tussle, they were trying to buy Tiffany. They're still trying on the hook to buy Tiffany, but they, they, you know, somehow miraculously, the French Foreign Ministry produced a letter that said that oh, you know, there's some trade issues, and it's basically viewed as as LVMH having outsized influence on politics in in and policy in France. You can just imagine what would happen if, I don't know, all of a sudden LVMH found that because of uh, the French government's uh, insistence on making human rights a, an issue with, or or or, the, or Hong Kong's future an issue with Beijing, all of a sudden they find that they're worried that their Louis Vuitton stores get closed down. And you could imagine, you know, the, the politics of it. I think it's really fascinating. And, you know, one thing we did see this week was uh, Ericsson. So Ericsson uh, came out yesterday, I think it was on Wednesday, and said that they had sort of really robust third quarter, a really great third quarter. And the CEO was sort of sounding upbeat about um, their pro the prospect for nabbing 5G telephone equipment contracts in mainland China. But at the same time, I don't know if you saw this, but the uh, spokesman for the Chinese foreign ministry essentially threatened Sweden with retaliation over the government's decision to ban telecoms companies Huawei and ZTE from taking part in a 5G spectrum auction in Sweden. So I don't know. I don't know. I'm not sure where, any, where all of this goes. What do you think, Dasha? What's the, you know, is this just going to, is this just, we're now seeing this because there's no one else, no one else growing or is and China's the only one out there or is this, is this the long-term trend? China become, we become more dependent on China and it basically become uh, more beholden to what its government wants to do. Well, I think it's been a, a long-term trend, like a lot of things. Uh, there's been this trend and, and COVID has massively accelerated. But the thing I find really interesting is what you mentioned in your piece, which is, will does it mean that these big companies uh, are now going to lobby various governments to keep, you know, keep relations sweet? And I'm quite interested in, in figuring out the uh, 
um, you know, the degree to which they're able to do that, because certainly, you know, I can speak from from following the um, uh, the, the sanctions against Russia story. Mm. You know, there was a, an aluminium uh, maker that got sanctioned, um, you know, because of Kremlin stuff and uh, car makers all over the world lobbied and lobbied and eventually you know the the company met some criteria but it was taken off the sanctions list and that's attributed to you know industry bodies lobbying so i wonder if it's if it's kind of you know if it's going to be similar uh in the case of any kind of wide-ranging sanctions in the future yeah no fascinating well look uh karen dasha thank you guys for your time and uh stay healthy out there thanks a lot bro thanks that's our show for this week thanks to my guests and hats off to our producer Freddie Joyner in New York our final thanks go to you our listeners for tuning in subscribe to The Views Room and our sister podcast The Exchange on iTunes, Spotify or wherever you go to get your podcast fixes check us out every day at breakingviews.com and don't forget to tune in next week for another edition of The Views Room Auf Wiedersehen and stay healthy